This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Eldorado Gaming. Eldorado Gaming is your site for gifts and gaming accessories like dice, playmats, and other items to bling out your games. Use the promo code META for 10% off your order. Find us on YouTube at Eldorado Gaming TX or our home site at eldoradogaming.com. Here at My Mythical Meta, we talk about gaming with friends and strangers, resolving conflicts, and keeping game nights fun, interesting, and recurring. Our game of choice is Magic the Gathering, but our hope is that what we share is relevant for board gamers, RPG groups, video gamers, and maybe even your poker night. I'm Travis, and with my brother Benjamin and my friends Derek and Randy, we've been playing Magic together since 2014, the secret to a healthy meta is not in the game you play, it's being good friends. Subscribe to My Mythical Meta, presented by Eldorado Gaming, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to My Mythical Meta, my name is Travis, and I'm joined this week by my brother Benjamin. Hello. And a very special guest. Benjamin, take it away. Yeah, we're joined today by a really long-time friend of mine, named Daniel. Daniel, say hi. Hello. I met Daniel way back in college. We kind of ran in some of the same circles. We went to church together. Uh, I've mentioned Daniel before, actually, as as somebody that I have played games with a long time in a weekly gaming group when I was in law school, and who uh, is very, very good. I think he's ranked number eight in Victory in the Pacific. And ranked very low in lots of other games. (laughs) (laughs) We all need a skill. And yours is Victory in the Pacific, and also just being very, very logical and thinking a lot about the human condition and relationships, and honestly, a perfect addition to my mythical meta. So I'm really happy that you're here. And for those of you who don't know us personally, Daniel was actually in my wedding. He was one of my groomsmen, a very important person in my life, and and someone I'm very happy to join us on the podcast. I'm very excited that Daniel's here. I met Daniel at Benjamin's bachelor party. When we played Imperial. Yeah, ah, that's right. Yes, Imperial. Yeah, we played Imperial. I lost control of my country in that game. Right. <laughs> uh, but I friended Daniel on Facebook those 11 years ago. So we've been friends from afar for many years, but I feel like I know you pretty well. So Daniel, you want to talk about your credentials, why people should listen to you, or, or anything special about you that you want people to know before we get into this week's topic? Uh, Sure. My family was board gamers since almost the beginning. We played probably the typical stuff. A lot of families play together, you know, started with Candyland. We did Clue and Monopoly and Pictionary. My mom somewhat and my dad really in particular, they have a lot of niche and esoteric games that a lot of people haven't heard of. So I got a wide exposure to a lot of different gaming streams, learned pretty early on that I just enjoyed the challenge of putting my mind to work and seeing if I can outthink the other person. And that was a fun way that my dad and I bonded. And especially he's a great measuring stick because he's got all this experience. And here I am at 8, 10, 12, learning how to think. And it's like, can I outthink my dad in this thing? (laughs) And it was a pretty healthy gaming environment. It wasn't rude or cutthroat. It was definitely, we're all going to try our best to win. If your best is awesome, cool. 
If your best is stumbling through it, that's okay too. We're all trying and we enjoy it together and we all congratulate the winner at the end. And then since then, I've gotten into some competitive gaming. As Ben pointed out, there are some games that I have rankings in that I play fairly competitively in tournaments. A couple of events I've won and a lot of them in which I am happy to be field feeler and just try and upset somebody every now and then. That's awesome. Tell us about what it's like to get into the competitive scene for one of these board games. Like, let's just talk about Victory in the Pacific, for example. There's a few ways that works. Some of it is that I will travel to different conventions or even I've started running some events myself that I think of them as tournaments and there are structure to it. I match opponents based on certain written criteria that are in my tournament rules. We crown a winner at the end. But I also try and make them just be opportunities to play, again, especially in lots of niche games that don't have tens of thousands of worldwide opponents. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of times the people come to this, and this is the only chance they get to play it face-to-face with someone. So it's a chance to get to know the other players, your small band of brothers, and get to know them, bond, form some camaraderie. Because you can play a lot of these games over the internet, Even if there's no dedicated way, you can send moves over email and there's email servers you can roll dice through. And I enjoy playing them that way. There's it's nothing quite like sitting down across from the other player and being in person, especially I tend more towards the extroverted side. So a lot of it is spending the time and money on those things. So they're they're competitive tournaments, but they're also just structured ways to have a scheduled time where we're going to make we're going to make this game happen because we don't get many chances for it. Yeah. Cool. We are so glad that you're here to join us for this week's topic. This week, we're talking about the bad luck slump. What it's like to play games that have variance. A luck factor that can impact the winner or loser of the game. Benjamin, what does it feel like when bad luck snatches victory from your grasp? It feels pretty bad, I'm not going to lie. When I, whenever I feel... You and the others writhing in my grip, and suddenly someone top decks the one card in their deck that could have saved them. Yep. It just feels like all your skill and all your careful scheming were for nothing. Yep, I placed those two fingers on the deck. Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> and you draw the exact card you need in order to come back and take the person that's on the throne and take them all the way down. Yeah. Now, to be on the other side of that is sometimes awesome. You know what your outs are. You know that there's something that can be done. If only it could be there. And then there it is. And you just feel this welling up of pride and uh, oh, it's glory. Euphoric. As you slam the card down or whatever it is, <laughs> you, you see the, the good die roll, the, the critical hit, and you, you, know, you slay the dragon with the power of, well, the power of luck, honestly. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's a very emotional experience to play the, the games that have a lot of luck involved. There's a card in Magic the Gathering called Chaos Warp. Yeah. It can target any card, and it has them shuffle that card back into the deck, and then they flip the top card of their library, and it goes directly onto the battlefield, if it's a permanent, for free. And that card can create huge spectrums of emotion, because they can flip a do-nothing, or they can flip something that's even worse than what you got rid of. Yeah, so yeah. you're effectively making them trade, and you may have just gotten rid of their second best card so that they could bring their best card in. Exactly. Yep. yep, that happens. I've also seen it where you shuffle it back in, somebody <laughs> cuts the deck, and then they flip the exact card you got rid of. Yeah, so you just wasted a card to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, so you wasted a card, and they still have 
the exact board you left them with. So variants can really change the game in pretty substantial ways. Now, there are some games that are entirely skill-based with no luck or variants whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, I'm thinking of games like Chess, Checkers, Othello. These are games that have no luck or variance. There's no die roll, no card draw, no anything that affects that game, where the game's victor is entirely based on skill. Theoretically, the player who practices the most and strategizes the best will win every time. Yeah, those games are often hard to get into because let's mm -hmm. say you have a friend who's into it and say that I want to get into chess and I have a friend who's a 1500 chess player they will always beat me right yeah we've talked before about how those small victories are needed to to keep someone invested and to make them want to grow and learn more and so the games that have no variance and are entirely skill I think have a hard time growing for that reason you know they have their upper echelon and they have people willing to try you know, there's always somebody in a chess club or whatever, but it, it never becomes the worldwide sensation because there's always a barrier to entry for people who want to be the best. That's a good point. It really helps with certain games like chess. There's at least enough critical mass coming in where you can pit the newbies against each other in a group learning. But if you've got a game with less of a player base than that, where you're only getting one new player at a time, they could play the worst experienced player there and still lose their first 10 or 20 games, which mm -hmm. even if that person likes the game, losing that much is definitely a barrier to them continuing to, to go at it. Yeah, which is why most games include an element of chance. Yeah, if your game has an element of chance, then newer players have a chance at success. Chance elements like dice or cards provide a natural catch-up mechanism, a way for someone who's behind to catch up to a player who's ahead. Mm -hmm. And even the youngest, most inexperienced players have a chance to win that game because they might roll better than their opponent or they might draw the card that helps them get ahead. They might land on the ladder that takes them up to the top row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might land on free parking. Right, or they might avoid boardwalk. Yeah, good luck on one player's side, bad luck on another player's side. Electronic games can incorporate probability into things like misses and critical hits. You know, as a young child playing Pokemon for the first time and not knowing all of the type matchups and not knowing all of the Pokemon special abilities, it happens enough where you get a critical hit that saves your Pokemon's life. Yeah. Or your opponent misses an attack that would surely KO your own Pokemon. Those elements of chance create a higher emotional spectrum. I can be in a losing position, but then have it all turn around by rolling a 20 so that I can score a critical hit. Yeah. Or drawing that perfect card, you know, drawing that cyclonic rift in order to get rid of all of my opponent's board so that I have the breathing space to rebuild. Right. It provides that element of hope that keeps people playing instead of doing like what my son might sometimes want to do and say, well, I'm losing. There's no point in continuing. I might as well yeah. throw the, the towel in. I think that element of hope, humans in general just like to have hope. And especially if we're having fun, we don't like to feel like there's no way to win. Yeah. And so if, if you think, man, if I just can roll the dice well this one time, I'm still in it. Yep. And that keeps people coming back. I do think I remember being young and playing games of risk and like having only one country left. Yeah. You know, like I'm on Japan 
and I have nothing left. And, you know, I'm surrounded on all sides, but I've got 30 people in Japan. <laughs> I, I think I remember a game with Will, and yeah. he just he just kept trying to take Japan from me, but I just kept rolling great defense. Yeah. Well, you've and always like, been pretty lucky. And, like, sure, I was probably not going to win that game, but it did create this Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans standing against an army of millions, like... It creates that feeling and it creates that story. Yeah, it's a core memory now. You you bringing it up twenty years later. <laughs> yeah, a core memory. So yeah, I think that those stories of, of a good luck streak or, or a time that you held out against the odds creates that high that stays with you for years. You know, in poker they always say you, you always remember the bad beats. The, the pot that you didn't win or the pots that you did win when you pulled it out on the river when when the mm-hmm. last card to come out was the one that won it for you i can still remember i played a bit too much poker in law school <laughs> online online poker oh yeah. benjamin yeah i played online poker and there was a day right before class started uh <laughs> It was business organizations class. I remember it. And so I was playing and I was ahead a lot. And I was like, man, I'm, I was on a good luck streak. But also, you know, at the time I played poker a lot. I was pretty good at it. I felt really good. And there was this game where I had the best possible hand at the time. And so there was someone who was betting very aggressively. And I'm like, I know you don't have a better hand than me because I have the best possible hand. So eventually I was raising back and eventually went all in. And so we turned up our cards and I was winning. And then the turn comes and I'm still winning. I'm like, I'm already doing really well and I'm about to double my money. Yeah, I'm about to clean this guy out. Yeah, I was like, oh, and then the last card comes up. I don't remember if it like made an inside straight. Highly improbable for maybe three or four outs total for the other player, but he got it. And I'm like, oh, I suddenly went from this high of, hey, I'm about to have a thousand dollars or whatever it was. I don't know. It was it was yeah. a lot of money to I don't have anything. I, so I'm sitting there stunned and class starts. And I'm like, so that was going to be my last oh, hand regardless. No. Yeah, it was terrible. Oh, my gosh. So then you're just a grump through class. Yeah, exactly. Just, oh, my goodness. I can't believe that just happened. Your professor's like, Mr. Campagna, is everything OK? <laughs> I, I probably played it off pretty well, but I was in the front row. Like, I was just sitting in class before class started. Just, I'm going to play a few hands. And I was like, wow, look at all this money I'm making. Nope. Oh, my gosh. I can do great playing poker when it's Monopoly money or, like, <laughs> pennies. Uh-huh. But as soon as I've put real money in, I just start floundering. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to talk about poker later, but, I mean, poker is one of those games where it is skill-based. Sure. And I've definitely, almost certainly won more than I've lost playing poker over the years. I haven't played poker in a long time. But I will say there are some experiences out there where you can feel the variance. And if you can't Mm -hmm. handle it, then it'll put you on tilt. Yeah. So we talked about some games being entirely skill-based. There are some games that are entirely luck-based. Extremely high variance with no decision-making involved whatsoever. And we've talked about Candyland in the episode with Margaret. We talked about war. Mm -hmm. You know, you just flip cards, and whoever has the higher one wins the hand. Like, there's no skill or decision-making involved in those games. Same with Candyland. You just draw the card, you move to the space that matches the color. That's Candyland, right? Yes. Okay. Shoots and ladders, you roll the die, you move... You go down a chute, sorry, or you climb up the ladder, great, that's it. Games like this can often feel bad or boring because we, the player, have no control. We have no input other than moving the piece 
or other than physically taking the card from the opponent. And that's why they have such low rankings on Board Game Geek, or that's why our board games will tear you apart for playing Monopoly. Right. Because there's <laughs> because there's too much luck involved and not enough skill or decision-making or strategy. Yeah, I think there's a time and place for these. The biggest one is playing with kids. I think we mentioned in the episode with Margaret with playing with kids that those are good games to give them a chance to learn just how to play games, how to take turns, how to handle yeah. winning and losing, how to handle variants in general, how to move pieces and not disturb a board, and all of those things that kids need to learn as kind of a scaffold for these more complicated games. And so there is a place for them because that way, no matter how smart you are, they can still beat you and it gives yep. them a chance. I will say it sometimes gives them a weird sense of, hey, I'm really good at this game, even though it's a game <laughs> that you can't possibly be good at. I'm uh, a Candyland champion. Right? I remember having that realization as a kid when Candyland felt too silly for me and we played Monopoly Junior, which also, I believe, is 100% luck, but it felt more strategic. I remember later suddenly realizing as I grew older, wait a second. I don't make any decisions in this game. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't feel as good when I would win. Right. Yeah, I think for competitive gamers, they look down on those games because of that, right? <laughs> There's nothing in it. It's just a way to pass the time. But for kids, I think it teaches valuable skills outside of strategy. So it's worth keeping. But once you know how to play any game, it's time to move on from those games, I think. Yeah, Sorry, Trouble. I remember uh, playing those with Momo. There's a tiny, tiny bit of strategy in Sorry. And the reason I know this is because we play Sorry with our kids and consistently beat them. Or at least consistently beat Ezra because he doesn't always make the best decisions. And because it is mostly luck-based, those few times where oh, you Oh, is it like you have, to, you have to choose which of your four pieces to move? Right. You have to choose which ones to move. When you roll an 11 or 10, you have to choose which pieces you're going to trade with or whether you're going to move backwards or forwards. You have to choose whether or not to get into the safety zone or get out or, you know, there's I mean, little... God, it's been 25 years since I played Sorry. Yeah. There's little decisions like that that can add up to a winning position when everything else is luck if you're always making the right one or always making the wrong one. But it's enough variance and enough luck that the kids can beat you. So it's a good like mm -hmm. segue to the bigger games. So once you've passed War and Candyland and you have your basic game skills, taking turns, moving pieces, being a good winner or loser... That's when you get to the majority of games, which are games with variants that also include skill. And if you have a high enough skill, the better you get at a game, the less variance affects you. People with high skill can mitigate the ill effects that variants might have on the game. I listed some games that we play often. Dungeons and Dragons, Magic Gathering, Pokemon. These are games where if you are skilled enough, if you know enough about the game you're playing, the system, the choices, the options, then you can make choices that mitigate a low roll. For example, in Pokemon. If I want to use a move like Dynamic Punch that has 50% accuracy, well, I can make moves to mitigate that low chance of hitting. I can take a move like Lock-On or Miracle Eye, which ensures that the next move always hits. Or I can give them an item. I think one is called Wide Lens. 
that increases the accuracy of your moves. So if I know enough about the game, then I can make choices to mitigate variance. Yeah, and I note that when it comes to luck and skill in games, it's easy to think of them as in opposition or as adding to a fixed quantity. If a game has less skill, then it has more luck, or if it has more skill, it has less luck. I find it possibly better to consider those two things as independent quantities, because games can be high in both or low in both. Consider tic-tac-toe. Other than who goes first, there's no luck whatsoever in that game. There's also not very much skill in tic-tac-toe. Think about poker. There is tremendous luck in poker. Possibly more luck than in most lucky games. And yet, the depth of skill in that game is also incredibly large. Especially if you play it more and more, then the skill will win out more and more because anything can happen in one hand. I could beat the best poker player in the world in one hand, probably not by a lot because he'd be wise and fold and lose only a small amount. If I play hundreds of hands with that person, I better hope I'm playing for small stakes because he's taking a lot of my money. So thinking about that, where games can have high luck and high skill both, I'll also note the presence of random elements in a game adds at least two skills to that game. The skill of understanding what your odds are and the skill of dealing with the swings of luck. And so you can add some skill into a game that didn't have those particular skill elements before. Obviously, for example, there's a lot of skill in a game of chess. Then you switch to backgammon. Now you have a new skill, understanding how likely is it that this piece will get hit? How likely is it that this will backfire on me? Also, how am I going to handle my position going from good to bad and back again based on things I didn't control? If I'm thinking about luck in a good way, I'll handle it well. If I'm getting overly excited at my good luck and ascribing anything that happens as good luck to my own skill and getting overconfident, I'm not going to do as well than if I'm staying calm and focused and dealing with the punches as they come. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, I think younger people especially, but they have a run of good luck and they think, wow, I'm so good at this. I'm so good at whatever the game is because I had a run of good luck at it. Uh, I remember there, there was... Benjamin, this might have been when you were playing poker, but poker was huge on, like, TV and ESPN. Do you remember? Like, ESPN2 had, like, the World Poker Championships and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, back when I was in high school, we would watch it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing because, obviously, when you're watching it on television, you can see what cards are in each person's hands, and the commentators can talk about the probabilities of what cards can come up. You know, they'll say, oh, this guy has a 38% chance of pulling this particular hand in these next three cards, or whatever. I think a lot of movies came out. I think, uh, was the movie called 21? Oh, it was the, about... the MIT Blackjack count card yes, counters? Yes, the MIT Blackjack card counting. That's exactly right. Yeah. That takes a ton of skill to do in order to understand how the variance is going to affect the game. Card counting is a great example of what we're talking about because card counting is a skill that can turn a game that is almost always in the house's favor to slightly, ever so slightly in your favor. But the thing about it is, if you are a perfect card counter, the variance still exists. That only puts the game in your favor in like a 51-49 split or something like that. So right. it means that you only experience the, the benefits of having that skill if you play a lot. 
if you just play a couple hands, even if you know the count, you might still lose. Yeah, it's still only going to benefit you that 51 or 49% of the time. Yeah. And the other side of the coin, it's still going to be just as bad as normal. Yeah. And so, speaking of having bad luck, it can feel really bad to have a run of bad luck because it can feel like the game was out of your control and that there was nothing you could do. Winning often feels like skill. You know, we love to take credit when something great happens. When we win, we say, ha ha, I made all the choices that led me there. There's nothing bad that could have happened. But then when we lose, we often blame something else. People do not like to admit that they are the cause of their own failure. And so right. when we lose, we sometimes say, ah, you know, that was bad luck. Again, there's nothing I could have done. There's no choice I could have made to get me out of that bad position. It's a story of confirmation bias. Yeah. And much like a couple episodes ago when we talked about always getting targeted, you know, if we document the events that led to whatever that outcome was, we can often figure out what the cause of the loss or what the cause of the win was. But it's human nature to take credit for something good and to push the buck when something bad happens. One of the things I do appreciate about Daniel and one of the things that I feel like makes him a good friend is that he is really good at kind of removing himself from that sort of bias and talking about well i see that i could have done this or that or whatever and not blaming luck for his own failures and not taking credit for something that's just good luck but yeah, yeah. and with the confirmation bias thing it would be quite arrogant of me to think i'm immune from it i do very intentionally make it attempts to remove that and when i feel like things are unlucky kind of like travis just pointed out with a i feel like i'm being targeted too much step back and think am i really so I definitely notice a trend where there are people who attribute their things to bad luck. They feel like they're getting screwed over. And I may not have a nice way to say this in the moment, but I'm thinking they're honestly not. Their luck isn't really any better or worse, but they don't have a great idea of what should have happened. And it's not that you have to go memorizing odds down to the detail. Like I know if you watch mm -hmm. like the World Series of Poker on TV, like you were talking about, they've got their computers there. The commentators, I'm sure, have a good idea, but they can punch in the things and say, look, there was a 27.381% of getting that flush or whatnot. I don't think about that when games, but I do think about a few simple things like, if you're rolling six-sided dice and anything but a one, you'll win this battle in this game you're playing. You roll the one. That feels horrible. If you stop back and think one of six isn't that low of a probability, especially if you're yeah. rolling that dice dozens of times in a game, a few times it's going to come up that one. And somewhat counterintuitively, getting a 50-50 shot at a number takes four rolls of a dice. It feels like it should be three or six for some reason. But once you roll four dice, any particular number has about a 50% chance of being there. It's really something like 51.5. But, you know, when I'm analyzing was I unlucky or not, 51.5 is 50-50 to me. We're not sure. trying to round things down to the hundredth and figure it out. You're just trying to think, was that kind of likely? Was it kind of unlikely? Was that normal? So if I take that chance where there's a one in six chance of it screwing me, I take that chance four times in a game. I've screwed myself in half the games I play now. And if I don't realize that, I feel like the game is screwing me half the time and it will detract from my enjoyment and it will probably make it more difficult to improve. So I don't think everybody needs to be hardcore and know all those numbers exactly, but having some idea of what the luck ought to be 
can really help you know, did I really get unlucky? Did I really get lucky? Or was the luck actually pretty even? If you don't think about it that way, it can end up being like a sporting event where you've got fans of both teams there and you don't care about it and all you're doing is hearing them both say the refs are screwing them over and you're just like come on guys can we just watch the game and not think the refs are against you every every play like we don't want that at your gaming table either right yeah i really like what you said about detracting from the enjoyment of the game and making it more difficult to improve if you think that the outcome of the game is out of your control then there's no incentive to try a different move to try a different input in order to get a different outcome. Insanity is trying the same thing and expecting a different outcome. There are lots of games where there is a measure of skill that can mitigate whatever bad luck you're having, and to always think about what you, the player, can do to get a different outcome in the next game, and to always look for improvement. That's something that we believe in at My Mythical Meta. Yeah, I have felt like this is one of the gaming skills that is most portable to the rest of life also. Because things happen to us all the time that are out of our control. And whether it's pursuing a relationship or a job or a hobby, a home improvement project, getting into writing or poetry and trying to finish a work, something goes well or goes badly, being able to figure out, did it go well because I did something right? Or did I get lucky and I really shouldn't do that again? Or oh, that was a total failure, that interview went horribly, that date went horribly, whatever it was. What things did I do there that I need to change? And what things, no, that's fine. That's how I'll do it, and that's okay. And I don't think gaming will directly answer that, but it can get you used to thinking that way rather than overreacting with, oh, that interview went badly, now I have a crisis of confidence and I'm going to change my whole approach. Or going the other way and saying, well, it went badly. Well, that interviewer was just an idiot. This company is a bunch <laughs> of idiots and there's nothing wrong with me. It's all them. You can right. it, you can help avoid both extremes if you're used to thinking critically about there's some things that are my fault and some that aren't. Which one was this and which one was that? Just getting used to asking yourself those questions, I think, is really useful for all sorts of self-improvement in every aspect of life. Benjamin? Daniel's edging in on your words of wisdom. I heard it. I was just about to say, I think he did today's words of wisdom early. Uh-huh. Shame, shame. <laughs> That's a great point, and I, and I think that... No, it's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, and I think that it applies, interestingly, like, to bring it back. There's something I teach my kids when I, when I teach them business and about starting their own business, and that's about expected value, and... Gaming, and especially poker, is what really got me into thinking about expected value. And then I've gone on to use it in business and in law and a lot of other things. But something that Daniel mentioned is like, hey, if you have a one-sixth chance of not being screwed, then over the course of four attempts, you're 50-50 to get screwed. Okay. But it still meant that you had a positive expected value in the moment that you tried it, right? You had a five-sixth chance of hitting it. And assuming that that five-sixth chance outweighed what would happen in the one-sixth chance, then you should always do that. And so if you get a bad outcome when you only had a one-sixth chance of failure it doesn't mean that you need to make a bad decision it just means you need to accept when the one six chance occurs yeah it can still have been the right move even if you get the wrong outcome exactly so learning to accept those things as well as you know going back to daniel's words of wisdom here going on a date 
and going to a certain restaurant where you know the the wait staff or whatever you know it's high quality and whatever and it just turns out that the date was allergic to a spice they use that you didn't know about doesn't mean that was the wrong move just means it didn't work out that's actually i really like that example partially because it's a great example of how things can be both and learning to look at it critically and make improvements doesn't mean that what you did originally was dumb you take a date to a restaurant it turns out that person is allergic to something there that most people aren't allergic to you just got unlucky but you can also look at it and say hmm Next time I ask someone on a date if I'm picking the restaurant, why don't I ask about their food allergies first? So I learned something to improve, still acknowledge that it was luck. It doesn't mean I screwed up beforehand, but I can still improve next time. Yeah, yeah. So a couple things about playing games with variants and this reflection activity that we're talking about of looking back and saying, is there anything we could do? If the variance was unavoidable, you know, we've talked about this rolling a D6, there's a one in six chance that it fails and a five and six chance that we succeed. If we roll the one, we don't have to feel bad about it or be salty about it. If games with variants make you upset or put you on tilt, like Benjamin mentioned earlier, take a break. Remove yourself from that situation until you've had a chance to examine the game and the situation that you're in. Ask yourself if that variance was unavoidable or if there's a move you could make to reduce the chances of that happening again. I used to play the miniatures game X-Wing. There was a time in X-Wing's history when it was still in the first edition where there were entire lists they could pile on evade and focus tokens so that for an entire round of shots, they would have enough tokens to always be able to evade all shots. Hmm. Now, again, that was first edition, and first edition got pretty bloated at one point, to the point where they eventually scrapped all of first edition and came out with X-Wing 2.0, because they realized games have to end, and if people are evading all shots, they'll never end. But the game theorists, the people who are figuring out the game and trying to break it, they found lots of actions and lots of choices you could make, in order to reduce the chances of getting hit. The same is true in Magic. That's our game. In the format of Magic we play, Commander, your deck has 99 cards in it. So the chances of drawing any one of those 99 cards on its own is pretty low. But there are moves I can make to increase those chances. I can add in cards that just say, draw more cards. In Magic, we we call that you know, adding in more card draw. If one card's designated purpose is to draw more, then that means that slot and more of your slots are going to be seen in any particular game. We also talk about tutors, which are cards that say, search your deck for any card. With a tutor card, I can basically make it so that instead of that particular card only having one slot in my deck, well, now it has two. Because one of the cards says, search your deck for a different card. Yeah. I can increase my chances of hitting a particular strategy or surviving longer by playing more ramp or more removal. I can make choices in my deck construction that reduce variance. And that's what really competitive games of magic look like. Lots of tutors, lots of ramp, lots of card draw. That way they're more guaranteed to see the winning cards in their deck. The cards that will 
lend them to the winning strategy. The same can be true in role-playing games even. When you're choosing your character options, pick the things you'll be doing the most often, the things your team is relying on you to succeed at. If I'm playing a barbarian, I don't need to put points in lock-picking or sleight of hand. Right. That's a skill that I don't need to put my points into. But if my team is relying on me to be able to break down a door, then I can increase my chances of successfully breaking down a door by sinking my points into strength. Yeah, a great example of that is in our most recent game of Mage, where we have the fighting characters and I'm basically the only character with any social skills. If I had spent lots of points on physical attributes, I would have reduced the chances of our team's success because that would have been less chances we had to slip past the guard or right. or convince someone to join our team or something like that. And so, yeah, at the highest forms of this, we call it min-maxing, where you just basically say, I want to do one thing. I want to always succeed at one thing. I want to make sure it always works. And last episode, we talked about Martian Colony. And in one of our games of Martian Colony, I made a mech that could basically hit somebody with their fist and destroy them. And it can move really fast from basically anywhere in the battlefield. It could you know, fly to somebody and hit them with enough power to, to do damage and, and destroy them. And it had no defense and it had no firepower. It didn't have any guns. It just, I'm going to run up and hit you. And it worked because I made it such that the variance didn't stop me from achieving my purpose. Exactly. Like, even with rolling low, if your stats are high enough, rolling low won't matter. Right. And I, I really like you using the, the role-playing example of what is your team relying on? Communication with friends and teammates, as mentioned a lot. It's, I know it's something that's important to y'all yeah. that you touch on almost every time. That's kind of a skill, too. We tend to think of skill versus luck in terms of hard factors, my strategy and tactics, my thinking, my planning. But diplomacy is a skill, too, not just in the role-playing game, <laughs> yes. your character having charisma. I mean, the actual diplomacy, like being willing yeah. to say, hey, team, what type of stuff that my character does is kind of nice? And what stuff are you really needing me to do or we're all in trouble? Being willing to ask that can be thought of as a skill also, and especially if people who have played online multiplayer game like a Dota or, or League of Legends, yep. being good at communicating and being patient with others communicating. So many games of those, for anyone who's played them, you lose because teammates turn on each other. Somebody jumps into a fight to ambush the enemy, assuming their teammates are coming with them. They don't. They just rushed in one on three. Oh, they get God, slaughtered, yeah. and now they're raging at their team. Their skill in saying... Hey guys, we got an opportunity quick. Is anyone willing to go? And if nobody says anything, you got to make that quick decision to go or not. But people who aren't willing to ask that question are going to lose the game more often. And they might feel like they got screwed or it was their teammates fault or it was bad luck. But investing into your own skill of communication can matter just as much as your knowledge of the numbers. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And basically the whole point of my mythical meta at all <laughs> yeah. You know, we can all be good at playing games, but if we don't have the social skill to manage our relationships and have people to play games with us, then we're not going to have people to play games with. Yeah. Daniel, hit us with that last point, managing your luck or making luck your friend. I hope this analogy is good here, but I tend to think of it like if, if I went out into the ocean and someone gave me a surfboard... I would feel like the waves were my enemy. Somebody who knows how to surf, the waves aren't your enemy. They're on, the waves are on your side. The waves are your friend. So yeah. as someone who likes to play games with a mix of skill and luck, 
because I enjoy the skill of dealing with luck. I like to think of luck as my friend in games, whether it's with me or not. And I think there are some ways that you can make luck your friend, especially if you're someone who feels like luck in games is against you and makes games less enjoyable for you. One thing is you generally have some amount of control over how much luck is in the game. If you're playing someone who's better than you or you're already in an awful losing position, add more luck to the game. Try risky things. If they backfire, oh well, you were going to lose anyway. Yeah, exactly. If you were already in a losing position, then making a risky choice and it not working hasn't actually changed anything. Right. And on the other hand, if you feel like you're the superior player, if you're in a solid winning position, you want to do actions that remove luck from the game and lower the risk, even if it lowers your own reward. Because if you're already winning, you don't necessarily need to go to a big reward. You just need, it would be like being tied in the final inning of a baseball game. You don't need to hit a grand slam. If you're the team going last, you just need that one run. You may yep. do an action that scores fewer runs, but has a greater chance of just getting that one. Yeah. yeah. In magic, we sometimes call a card a win more card, which means this card is only good if you're already winning. In which case, we usually end up cutting those cards because you want a card that can help you when you're losing to turn the table. If you're already winning, then you don't need to win more. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm reminded of a game called War of the Ring. It pits yeah. the free peoples versus the shadowy forces in the Lord of the Rings mythos. Very good game, highly recommend it. And generally, if you're the free people, you want to destroy the ring. Your military forces are just there to hold off the enemy so that you don't lose to getting Middle-earth conquered. Because in that case, who cares if you threw the ring into the fire, if Gondor and Mordor and the, all the elven and dwarven strongholds are all in flames everywhere. You still <laughs> right. didn't really win. There is an option that is very rarely used for the free people to win militarily outright. It doesn't usually work if you don't really know what you're doing. But I heard someone talking about it once who said they like to use it in tournaments because it wins about 40% of the time. And my thought was... If it only wins 40% of the time, why are you bringing it out in tournaments? And he said, because when I go play at a tournament, I lose way more than that anyway. But if I pull this <laughs> one out, not only because it's a higher risk, higher reward, but because it's unexpected, which part of knowing luck and skill there is you can kind of think as the of your opponent as a luck factor. It's not really random, but you don't know what tricks they know and what they don't necessarily so if you try something that they may or may not know how to defend against, somewhat, it, you can think of it as a luck element that maybe they know that, maybe they don't. A really great example of that is someone I know who played a lot of chess, and he would memorize very weird gambits and tricks from books in the 1800s. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he was really into chess. That was more into it than I would have ever done. But That's awesome. he would learn these tricks that had been completely and utterly refuted 100 years ago. But just because they've been refuted doesn't mean even a really good player in your local city group or whatever, or I think maybe he was in a school club at the time, doesn't mean they know that reputation. Right. And he got such a reputation for beating better players than himself with these tricks. And as we talked about earlier, beating better players in a game like chess is really hard to do. One time he made a horrible blunder and his opponent did not take advantage of it because he thought, it's some trick. I'm not going to fall for that trick. 
So even in a no luck game, he <laughs> thought of his enemy's knowledge of these tricks as a luck factor and used his skill of manipulating luck. That's just a great example of someone who can do that. I played him in a victory in the Pacific tournament once. He won this tournament 20 years ago and hadn't played in 15 years. So he introduced a brand new strategy that wasn't necessarily good, and I still ended up beating him. My brain was fried by this because he comes out with something. I've played this game hundreds of times. I've won tournaments of it. I have never seen anything like this before. So now instead of playing a meta that we both know, but in the past 15 years, I've done dozens of times and he's never done. Now we're both playing something we've never done before. And with one stroke like that, he evened up the playing field of the experience gap. And mm -hmm. that type of thinking, he wanted luck in the game. He knew he was rusty. His best chance was to get lucky. And even though he didn't get lucky in that game, I think he made an excellent strategic decision and kind of outfoxed me a bit, honestly. Even though I did win, I felt like I had been out-strategized in that one. And uh, I told him very nicely... This is a compliment, sir. I don't want to play you again in this event. <laughs> that was okay, in the event structure where you don't play the same player twice anyway. But uh, yeah. it was just, wow, that was that fried my brain so badly. <laughs> to pull out strategy from an old meta to someone who is not familiar with it, that can still really flip someone on their toes. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's so interesting. Another thing that I can think of in terms of making luck your friend Someone else I know has a principle that I try and keep in mind. It's just like a solid thing. He does this every game for him. After a game, if he lost, before he blames to luck, he tries to stop and say, what's one thing that I should have done differently? Which isn't necessarily what he got unlucky, because maybe he got unlucky doing the right thing. But no matter how unlucky right. he was, before he talks about luck, he wants to think to himself, what's something in that game I could have done better that had nothing to do with the luck? And getting used to thinking that way makes him not only a better player, but probably a more enjoyable opponent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's going to look inward about how he can be a better player rather than, oh, my opponent did an unfun strategy or my right. opponent was unfair or or it was bad luck or he's going to take ownership and responsibility of his own games. Yeah, yeah and then the, I think my, the last thing is to not comment on your own bad luck to yourself at the table too readily if you're constantly saying you start to roll the dice and before it even happens here we go again it comes up bad sure enough i told you i'm screwed already i have no chance this game i've already lost you start to yeah. talk like that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy something that i noticed in playing with ben and ben has i know talked about on this before he likes being the underdog so he's not going to necessarily make himself play badly to be the underdog on purpose but when he gets in an underdog position i can tell from playing with him he'll get a he'll look a little frustrated at first because that's a natural human emotional reaction it does not last <laughs> long it quickly turns into the odds are against me. The world is against me. All the other players think they've got it. <laughs> How can I get back into this game? And I can almost see the, the gears turning. And if he's going at it the whole time, trying to come back saying, well, this won't work. I might as well surrender. His odds of fighting back into the game, I think, are lower. And I've seen plenty of people in plenty of competitive or casual games over the years I think kind of beat themselves by getting too down on themselves after some early bad luck. And yeah. uh, the things you say out loud to yourself, you teach yourself to believe them in a way. So it's, I'm not saying you should that. never say those things or anything, but it is worthwhile to watch the way you speak about your own 
odds of the game. It's part of being, I think, a good friend, too, because completely unintentionally, usually, you may be making the other player feel less satisfied, like you're saying they don't get credit. If the first thing you do after a game when you lost is to say, man, that card, that dice, that this, it might be taken as you didn't really beat me. You didn't deserve to beat me. I deserve to beat you. You're just lucky. And I think most people would know not to just blatantly say that to the other person, but you can do things that nudge people to feel that way, even if you're not meaning to. And I think a good kind of guideline there would be before you talk about the luck in a game that was against you, mention some way your luck was good or something the other player did well. And then if you get to talking about the game, you can kind of read the player and mention. So rather than, oh, I thought I had you until that one card came out. Wow, that was a really interesting combo. I had seen it done differently before. You put a new twist on it. And then if they're following these rules too, they might say something like, yeah, I like that combo. It was neat, but I think you got a little unlucky there. I didn't know I I had you. And then you can say, yeah, I I felt like my luck was bad there, but you know what your combo. And now you're, now you're in a good, healthy conversation that doesn't leave either person feeling like you're, you're, you're cutting anybody down. I can, I can recall a particular game where one person was just his little catchphrase was when I would roll good and I was rolling well in that game. But he would say almost every time, like, oh, boy, you're just the luckiest. Oh, man. It got a little (laughs) grating. I don't think he was trying to be mean, but it felt rude to me. It was as if he was saying, you're just lucky you're not good at this game. And it it made me not enjoy the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I was in high school, it kind of became part of our Smash Brothers trash talk. Once you get a KO, you spike somebody into the zone, you go, all skill, all skill. (laughs) In order to counteract the other person saying, you know, that was a lucky shot or whatever. He'd say, all skill, baby. Got it. Nailed it. All skill. <laughs> he still does that in games I of Magic. I still do that in Magic, too. Yeah, yeah. where, he, where he, he top decks, you know, he's empty-handed, he's down on board, and he top decks something to, to wipe everything, and he goes, ah, all skill. All skill, baby. <laughs> I planned it that way. When you were talking about the self-fulfilling prophecy of, like, getting into your own head about luck, I can vividly remember a game of Settlers of Catan in college. I don't know if Brooke is listening to my mythical meta. Benjamin, have you uh, have you talked to her in order to get her to listen? I have not. Oh, man, we should reach out to her. Yeah. Me and Kristen and Brooke were playing a game of Settlers of Catan at her apartment in San Marcos. And I can remember just, like, every single roll not getting the resource I needed. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, it just... I mean, like any game of Settlers, you know, you have some cities on high probability, you have some cities on low probability. It just didn't work, but I can remember every single roll just beating myself up, being like, bad luck, bad luck, bad luck, bad luck, and thinking there was absolutely nothing I could do, when clearly somebody got up to 10 victory points and won that game, meaning somebody played a good game. Right. And you saying that and and describing that scenario... I can think in my head like, wow, I probably did that. Made somebody else feel like they didn't play a good game because I kept blaming my poor play on the bad roll of the dice. You know, as as we're saying this, I think it ties in with some of the stuff you've talked about with compliment sandwiches. Is <laughs> yeah. If you compliment the other player's skill sandwiches, it'll come across a lot better when you mention your own bad luck. Yeah. Or talk about your own good skill in the middle. Because, you know, I think if I've beaten somebody and then they tell me I made a great move, I'm in a good mood. 
Like, I feel really, I feel like I enjoyed the game and I've been encouraged. And then if the person says that they think their luck was bad, I'll probably be sympathetic to them and and acknowledge it. And I won't feel any worse about that. Yeah. 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 The skill sandwich after you lose. The skill sandwich. That's a good way to put it. Compliment somebody else on a good move they made. Mention your bad luck. And mention your bad luck and then compliment them again on their great skill. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I love it. Or be aware of their bad luck, too. Oh, yeah. That's true. Like, wow, I had bad luck on this, but you know what? You overcame that bad luck there. Remember when you got the, you know, in Catan, you you got robbed of several cards in a row and lost half your hand twice. I don't know how you came (laughs) back to win from that one. That was impressive. Absolutely. Cool. All right. All right. I wanted to come back and mention something. You mentioned Tic-Tac-Toe as a game with no skill. I know so many high school students who would shout defiance to you. <laughs> They're like, I can win any game of tic-tac-toe. You can draw any game of tic-tac-toe. <laughs> right. <laughs> Basically, there's there's the very basic skill. It's a very low bar. Once you've got it, every game is a draw from then on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think part of it for me is embracing luck, making it my friend. It doesn't just mean embracing the good luck. It means if I like to play games with luck, I'm going to have bad luck and I can enjoy that too because we're hopefully not all speaking here and listening, not the type of people who only enjoy winning. So if we enjoy playing, that means enjoying the good luck and the bad luck. I agreed to play a game where sometimes bad luck will happen to me. I'm going to enjoy the process of going through that. If you come into the game with that mindset, it's not that you won't be frustrated. Again, we're human. We feel things, but it's going to be less frustrating. And it's going to be less frustrating for you and for your opponents. And it, it, it'll probably become a positive feedback loop because less frustration for you means less frustration for them, means they do less things that frustrate you, and it kind of accelerates right. like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. It is time for this week's news, news from, from the Warfront. War War Daniel, get in on this. <laughs> Clearly, I'm less experienced at the Warfront announcements. Beep, beep. All right. <laughs> I really liked this post because it wasn't really like a social problem. It was just an interesting way of thinking about gaming and about the time you spend playing. So this was a post on our board games. And the question is about cost per play. This poster said, I'm using the board game stat app to record my plays of games. It has an option to track cost per play. And that got me thinking. I was wondering what people think is a good goal and what time frame people would give themselves for it. My first thought is $10 per play with a 12-month time frame to hit that goal. And that that doesn't work for all games. And that was actually all that the post included. I'm going to give a little background, a little framing on what this question means. So this person is talking about having bought a game and then play it a certain number of times so that the cost per play gets reduced to an acceptable cost, an acceptable payment. If I were to play this game only one time, what would be a reasonable cost to pay for it? I have done this for many years where whenever I pick up an activity, a book, a board game, a video game, or if I go out, or even if I'm driving... I ask myself, what am I paying per hour to do this thing? For example, if I buy a novel and I know that it's going to take me approximately 15 hours to read that novel. Well, if that novel took me $20, you know, if I paid $20 for that brand new hardcover book or whatever, 
and I read it for 15 hours, then that means that I've paid just a little over a dollar per hour in order for that entertainment. And that's a really great rate. You know, a, a dollar per hour, that's pretty good. So yeah. this person's asking about board games for that. For what it's worth, I think when they say BG stat app, they're referring to a board game geek play tracker. I could be wrong, but I Is think that that's right? what they mean they're using. Yeah, on board game geek, you can go to your game collection and record a play of the game and say, I played this game with these people at this time sort of thing. And and some oh, people wow. use that to kind of look back at their gaming history. <laughs> nerds. For any of various reasons, <laughs> yes. What sort of nerds would do that, says the guy who <laughs> has some plays recorded there, although I haven't done it in a while. Right, that's because you record our plays on Area. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Area is a service somewhat like Elo does for chess where you – a lot of these niche hobby games can measure their rating. And at our weekly gamers group, I would submit our results for that. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a number that goes up when you win and down when you lose. But it was interesting to sometimes look back and see sure. which of us are at the top at which games. And sometimes it's not necessarily who you would think because we have selective memories or just forget what we played three years ago. And it's like, oh, yeah. man, I'm at the bottom of this game and at the top of that game. Did not know that. Wait, Ben, you hadn't even played that a couple of years now. You're still up at the top there. All right. So it's just a little <laughs> extra fun and bragging rights for that sort of thing. Yeah. So what do you guys think? I guess one, about tracking your cost per play, but two, what do you think is an acceptable cost per play for, I mean, I guess we could say board game, but video games, books, what do you guys try to get your, your cost per hour down to in your various activities? I think for the most part, I tend to measure all entertainment value against a two-hour movie yeah like the experience of going to a theater to watch a movie right but not including popcorn and stuff because i can make popcorn at home and it's almost as good so for me I, I say okay whatever the cost of a movie ticket is divide that by two and that's a general entertainment hour because i spent so much time growing up where that was my main special occasion you know once i got older and had disposable income it got to be where it was like i can go to any movie i want all the time this is amazing and, <laughs> yeah and went to a ton of movies in college went to a ton of movies before i had kids so i still kind of in my head i don't know if that's the correct way since i don't go to as many movies anymore but in my head the standard cost of a local movie ticket divided by two is what an entertainment hour should cost. And if I can do better than that, like I, I feel like it's pretty good. Sure. And with that as the standard, it's actually really easy to justify almost any form of entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Which I think means maybe that's... Movies uh, are too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've thought of that too. You know, Kristen will have friends from out of town come over and we'll do, we'll do mini golf. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, two or three hours of mini golf and it was $7 a ticket or whatever. $7 a person. Hmm. Well, that's awesome. That was three fifty a person. Yeah. No, that's Easy. really good. And it's how I justified poker when I was young too. I was like, well, if I buy in for $20 and I play for three hours and then lose all my money, well, that wasn't any more expensive than going, going to a to double a movie. Exactly. So what Will used to say is, it's not losing money, it's buying fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, he, he, wasn't, he was very rarely losing, so he was just using that to make us feel better about giving him money. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, the, <laughs> with that as the standard, I think it's really easy to justify most board games as long as you play them soon after buying them the first time. Because mo you know I don't buy a lot of short games 
So if a standard game that I buy takes three hours, or if I set aside a Saturday to spend three hours playing it, so I might play it two or three times, and I spent $60 on it, which board games are too expensive now too, then I, I'm, I'm there, right? Basically, if I play it twice, I'm there. And it gives me something to aspire to. I think where I'm like, I am dreaming on this. I, I can talk it up and get other people to try to play it and things like that. I do have a backlog of board games. I think most hardcore gamers do yeah, have a backlog yep. of games. I think we talked about that in a prior news from the Warfront too. Yeah. Having a backlog do. of games still in their shrink wrap. Yeah. It gets harder and harder. And and I will admit that I actually now only buy games on Kickstarter or games that I have long wanted because I've played them before. So I kind of feel like I, they're already worth their cost just because I know that they're a good game and I have enjoyed them, even if I never actually get to play them so like i recently bought imperial 2030 because i had played imperial before and really liked it i was like i just want to own this game even if i never get to play it again and you want the developers to have been rewarded for a good product exactly that's true especially with a lot of games like that most people aren't making a killing designing those games unless you get lucky and make the next pictionary or monopoly that hundreds of thousands of people will play. There's not a lot of people that make a living as a board game designer. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of graduated from this cost analysis a little bit as far as board gaming goes, because I've kind of said, well, I have such a backlog that I can't justify buying any more games. So instead of buying games based on entertainment value, I buy them based on ownership value. Do I feel better having this in my library or am I content to just hope to play it with other people later? And for the games that I have a core memory of or that I have shaped how I think about gaming or impressed me in some way, I will buy those games regardless of if I think I'll ever play them. So while I think this is an interesting way to look at buying games and justifying costs, it's just not the way I do it. Yeah, this is definitely a kind of different way to go with a Warfront question. Because like you said, it's not I have this social interaction or confrontation sort of deal. And it kind of, I think it got us all thinking outside the box here a little bit. Yeah. To me, when I think of game value, I think of it as the money I play plus the time I don't invest in the other games. So if I buy a new game for 50 bucks and over the next couple of years I spend 20 hours on it, those were probably 20 board gaming hours I would have done with some other game anyway, and sure. it's probably some other game I like. So I don't ask, is this game worth 50 bucks? I ask, is it worth 50 bucks plus the missed opportunities of the other games? So I tend to not buy that many new games. So okay. I, I may not be the best to answer this person's question because that's not how I think in terms of play. But to try and give it a good answer, I think setting a goal and trying to hit it is a reasonable thing to do there. I think you would want to be cautious about adhering too rigidly to making that goal because let's say you buy one game that's 40 bucks, one game for 100 bucks, they both take the same amount of time to play. And then later you want to play a game and well, if I play that 100 buck game a second time, my cost per play drops by 50 bucks. And if I play that other one, it only drops by 10. Or 20, I don't remember which number <laughs> I used originally. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, but either way, you spent the same amount of money and in the same time, so you could get a little sunk costy in trying to only play those expensive games just to force it into that goal. The way I would, would approach this is to when not, it might not have been When it might not have been right for the 
the social situation you're in or the people you're playing with yeah or what you were feeling for that particular day you know you could get stuck saying no i have to play cthulhu death may rise <laughs> when really all you want to play is king of tokyo and so i think a good way to know what a good benchmark is is to do this more than once your first 12 month frame i would set some fun levels set one what is my cost per play of going to a movie what's my cost per experience yeah of eating like at, at a Wendy's or Chick-fil-A. What's my cost per play of going to a nice fancy restaurant? What's my cost per play of going to a sporting event, if that's your thing? Come up with some different yeah. fun things you do in life. Come up with the different levels. And then at the end of the year, hmm, my gaming was about the equivalent of eating a chicken sandwich. My gaming was about the equivalent of <laughs> buying War and Peace and Lord of the Rings and reading them all through in the year. And it's just oh kind of fun God. to compare it to. And then, you know... Do I feel that that was a good thing or a bad thing that my gaming was at that level? And based on that, now you know what to set it for the next 12 months afterward. I think that's extremely insightful to just be like, what are the things that I enjoy spending my time on? And is board gaming that thing that gives me the level of enjoyment per cost of other things I enjoy? That That's super insightful to me. The benchmark that I often use is, like I said before, reading a book or playing a video game. If I buy a video game for $60 and then play it for 60 hours, then I've spent a dollar per hour, which means that games that I keep going back to, like Dragon Age, Cyberpunk, Fire Emblem, you know, if I keep going back and pumping in more and more hours, you know, I probably have at this point maybe 300 hours in each of those games. And two of them I got as gifts. <laughs> I think Dragon Age is the game that, I, uh, that I've always bought for myself. Actually, I borrowed it from a friend the first time. But anyway, if I pay $60 and get 300 hours worth of enjoyment from something, then the cost has become ne negligible per hour. The same is true if I'm watching a movie from a streaming service I own. Benjamin, you mentioned this earlier. If it's something that I've already spent money on, then... I'm going to feel great going back to it over and over again because the cost has become negligible. Benjamin, I don't remember what exactly you said earlier about once you've sunk a certain amount of money into something and spent X amount of time, it becomes effectively, it becomes effectively free. free. Benjamin, are you there? Oh, sorry, I was muted. <laughs> I've, I've been responding to you. <laughs> Let's say you, you buy something and obviously you did spend money on it. We're not going to do that kind of fuzzy budgeting math there. You sure. did spend money on it. But if I spent that money long enough ago where it's no longer part of my budget, it's just it's a it's now an asset, it's part of my inventory, it's something I own, then going back to something that you already own that's part of your inventory and using that instead of going out and buying a new thing is effectively free, right? Same thing with streaming services. If, if you have paid for a streaming service, that eight bucks is gone. If you've decided you're gonna keep using that streaming service, that eight bucks is gone every month or 15 bucks or whatever they are now, right? $23 for Netflix now. Oh, what? Ca oh my god. I goodness. mean, cable's back, man. Yeah. It's yeah. just cable's back and it's just as bad. Dang, glad we got rid of Anyways, yeah. Sadness. So if you're using Netflix- We need and Derek here for his- capitalist commentary yeah <laughs> then that money is money you're already going to spend and as long as you've budgeted for it and you've accepted that you're spending it each time you choose to use it is free compared to going out and maybe renting something pay-per-view or going to the movies or buying a new dvd or any other way to pay for entertainment you can either use the money that's already sunk in and not pay extra money 
or pay extra money. So that's what I had said earlier before the show started. I did want to make a comment, though, about where you talked about, hey, the things that I keep getting value from, I keep going back, and I'm, I'm comfortable spending money with that. Something I've started doing recently because of that same reasoning, is actually buying premium version of mobile apps. You know, I was one of those people who for the longest time just said, no, I can't justify that. You know, it's stupid. Why why, why are people paying for apps? They're all free. And, and I was doing that when I had a lot of money. You know, now that I'm a teacher and don't and don't make nearly as much, now is where I start to say, you know what? I value the time. I don't buy premium apps right away. I download the app and I see if I like it. But then if I realize I'm using this app a lot, maybe a month in, and I, I'm still liking it, if it's a game or a productivity app or something, and I'm getting enjoyment out of it, it's working for me, it's my go-to game or whatever it is, I will pay to get rid of the ads. Now, I still won't buy like the premium Battle Pass or whatever. I, you know, I gotta sure. draw a line somewhere because I can, <laughs> sp- can spend all my money uh, real easy. But I'll pay that $4.99 one time to get rid of all the ads because why would I want to spend my entertainment time watching ads? And I'm like, now it's justified its existence in my life, right? It's it's the thing that I'm spending, you know, I've already spent however much time on this app and I know I like it. I might as well spend the five bucks to make it more enjoyable. And I can trust that I will continue to use it and continue to get value out of it and that much more value. It's not just apps. It's, you know, I like premium versions of a lot of stuff. Uh, for that very reason, like if I've ar- if it's already justified its place in my schedule in my time, I I don't mind making that experience even better. And so I feel like that relates to what you were saying about hey, Dragon Age, uh, Fire Emblem, the ones you keep going back to that you can justify with the amount of time you spend. I've used that same logic to say, you know what, I'll pay to get rid of the ads on a mobile app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know if I can get my entertainment down to less than a buck an hour that's acceptable to me yeah if i spend 23 dollars a month on netflix then that means i need to spend 23 hours a month in netflix does that mean one hour a day (laughs) does that mean each week i watch a movie and as long as it's me or my wife then it's fine yeah you know because we're only paying for it once and then the same is true for our basic cable with tlc if Kristen watches enough sister wives 90 day fiance (laughs) you know intervention hoarders if Kristen watches enough of that per month then it's paid for (laughs) right do you do that in reverse do you say hey we're not watching enough of this to make it worth it let's cancel or do you only do it the other way and say hey we paid 23 dollars we need to spend 23 hours i would like to do it more in reverse you know Kristen and i put together a budget and there are so many of our entertainment services that are bundled with other services yeah so for example Apple Music and Apple TV are bundled, Mm. and we rarely watch Apple TV. We literally watch Central Park and Ted Lasso, and those are the only two shows on Apple TV we've watched. Mm -hmm. But I do use my Apple Music a lot every time I'm in the car, so if... If I'm using my Apple Music a lot and it only costs one or two dollars extra to have Apple TV bundled in, even if I don't use it, it is still there as an option. It's an opportunity cost that I'm paying at that point. Yeah. I have the choice if I wanted to watch that show. There's a new series that I might check out on Apple TV called Monarch that, uh-huh. that's about the organization in all of the Godzilla movies. Oh, that, yeah. That monitors giant monsters. So that sounds I, cool. You know, I have the opportunity because I've paid for it to watch that show. Yeah, the bundling thing. Like, I think we get Disney Plus and Hulu and 
and ESPN. ESPN. I don't through, use ESPN at all. Yeah, but it comes with it, and I think yeah. we get them through Verizon. Through Verizon. <laughs> It's like, okay, well, there are other yeah, plans exactly. on Verizon that don't have them, but they don't include things we would use, so might as well use this one. Yeah. Yeah. Those are always tough because sometimes it's like, boy, if I bundle these together and it's 50 instead of 70, I save 20. And then it's like, yeah, but if you don't do it at all, then you save 50. <laughs> right. Yeah. All of our entertainment bundling has gotten so incestuous. Like, it's all interconnected in such a way that I was looking for, you know, we were looking for things to cut. But then if we cut one thing, we're cutting three things. Yeah. And we miss out on something that we do use. And we get more quote-unquote value. Again, that opportunity cost. We can use those things if we choose to, if we pay just a little bit more. Yeah, they know what they're doing. They got us. Yeah. I don't know if our listeners wanted to tune in for a financial <laughs> news from the warfront, but that's what they got this week. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's enlightening to somebody, especially considering their game habits. And since we already did our words of wisdom, I want to add this little thing that's on topic here. Like gaming is one of those things that can be done for little or no cost. You can go buy a $2 deck of cards at a convenience store and play games for hours and hours and hours. Oh my God. Yes. In fact, you know, over the weekend while we were at OniCon, we went back to the hotel room and played cards with the kids and had a great time. That's awesome. Yeah. No matter what you set as your cost per play or however you want to justify spending money or anything like that, just know that entertainment can be little or nothing of your budget and you can still have a good time and take advantage of all the things we talk about on this podcast because you can do those things for free. And in fact, I've found online a lot of the RPGs that we talk about are available for cheap or free because you can buy the PDFs for five bucks online mm-hmm. Yep, and things like that. And so there's a whole world of opportunity that's free and you don't need to spend money the way we've talked about. Just make sure that it's in your budget and that you are not letting your entertainment control you, but that you're getting the value you want out of your entertainment and that it's it you're in control of it. I'll channel Derek. Make a rich friend. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way. All right. Any final comments? No, I think this was a good show. Daniel, where can people find you? <laughs> well, uh, do I want people finding me? <laughs> um, you know, is there anything you want to plug? Some some of the places I hang out are not commonly known and hard to find because I'm into a lot of esoteric gaming pursuits. But spend a lot of time talking about historical-based battle or political games on a site called Consum World. And if you Google my name with uh, area ratings, you can you can see all the games that I'm good or bad at. 5,000 is, is average, and you, you go up or down for there. And then uh, I sometimes run events at Millennium Con, which was in Austin for a while, and it'll be about an hour north of here starting next year, and I, I hope to keep running events at. And then newly this year, I'm the, the tournament director for Midwest Open, which is out in Milwaukee. It's a Victory in the Pacific weekend and we get about 30 people, about half from the area, and some that come from all over the country. And it's one of those, you've got a few newbies and a lot of old friends. And it's people that I, some of them I see once a year at this event. We spend the weekend playing games. Your game, win or lose, finishes early. You deal out Uno or you set up Flux mm-hmm. or you put Pandemic on the next table. Talk, catch up in each other's lives. It's people that have, have become genuine friends with over the time. And so it's hard to keep a gaming event, especially for something that niche, going with the way that costs just of everything are, are up so much. 
happy that this game from 1977 has still got an event going on now and to do my part to keep that going and hopefully grow it as things go on. The game should be getting a reprint soon, thanks to Gameaholics, to get some, some shiny new graphics in there. And we'll see what that does for it. But it's looking up, I think. Cool. Great. Thank you so much. If you want to be a guest on My Mythical Meta, let us know. Share My Mythical Meta with your friends and contact us if you've got questions or you want to be featured on News from the Warfront. With that, thank you guys for being my great friends. And listener, thank you so much for listening. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. This episode was sponsored by Eldorado Gaming. Use the promo code META for 10% off your order. Please like, comment, subscribe, and share. This episode was edited by me, Travis Konashek, and our intro and outro music is by Tyler Heath of the Oh Hellos.